0: Well first of all my name is uh, Todd I see a few of you here that I don't know Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone and uh, so if uh, you're new here welcome um, to all the rest of you Um, yeah just again reminder truly do enjoy and love being a shepherd here at Cornerstone here's what we're looking at though and here's what I kind of want to I want to throw out there for us to kind of move towards this morning Last week, I threw at us why we're going to be looking at this, this concept of the church. Now, I, I think the church is actually a bigger question than maybe we have given it, it, it credence for. Now, the reason that I think it's an important question for us to ask is it, it, it comes down to, I think in a lot of people's lives, they are asking or maybe they're making this statement in their heart, there must be more. I know it's something that's been in my heart. I feel like when I travel around the nation, when I do different things, I, I kind of hear people, and, and whether we're talking inside of the church or even inside of our country or whatever it might be, I just sense this feeling there must be more. There's, this can't be all that there is. There's got to be more to this thing. And I think the answer to that is found in an understanding of, of what's the church and who's the church and, and why does the church even exist, and last week what we learned was, is, is I think some of the reason we don't get excited about the church is the church, after a while, if you're not careful, becomes a series of events. And it's not the event, which is God. Now just think about this for a second. Last week we talked about God in his grace and goodness has been gathering for himself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, men and women, old and young, every socioeconomic condition. He's been pulling them together throughout time, making him his very own, but not just because he's bored, he's now changing them and transforming them so they might be the people now that, that in First Peter 2 it talks about that declare his excellencies to the world. That's why the church exists, to, to glorify God. But more importantly, I would say this, to declare his excellencies. Now, that's hard because that's kind of big picture stuff. My my wife and I were talking about it afterwards and she goes, yeah, Todd, I appreciate that, but I've got four children and I'm just trying to figure out how to survive my four children. So I told her to do a better job. (laughs) No, I I didn't. I, I go, I know, isn't that weird? Like it's just, there's this stuff of life that's just so difficult to wrestle through. But again, I think that's why we need to talk about the church. This place now where a group of people don't now just sit around and say there must be more. We start to realize we do have the more. And that is found in the person and work of Jesus. But I think every time that that God's people throughout time have kind of got to that point of what are we supposed to be and and what are we supposed to do. And we're, we're saying to ourselves this same thing. There must be more than this is there something that's special that ever always happens to the church, and that is they go back to this amazing book called the Bible. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to grab this, and, and I, want to, I want to talk about this thing called a Bible. Now part of it is, and it's good for the, the title of the, of the message that I'm going to be preaching today, but God's people really always have been a people of the book. That's what marks us. Now, Islam also, if you've ever read anything about, uh, uh, out of Islamic literature, they would say there are people of the book. Judaism says there are people of the book. The Mormons say there are people of the book. Everybody kind of says there are people of the book, and everybody kind of has a book. But there is something special about this particular book. Now, on one level, it's just simple. It's been made over, it's made over almost like 1,600 years. There's 66 different books compiled together, so much so that this guy named Jerome a long time ago, what he called it was is the Bibliotheca Divina or, or the Divine Library. But there's something powerful about this book and what it does is in the way it transforms his people. For example, one of the things that I love when we talk about a people of the book is the guy named Josiah. If you don't know who Josiah is, he was one of the youngest kings to ever ever rule over Israel. After reading the story, that's actually why I I called my son Josiah, and I'm still waiting for it to happen, but (laughs) I called him Josiah because I think we sell young people short way too often. He was a young man that came in, and he was making this statement that was up there just a second ago. He was saying there must be something more than this. And he began to go all throughout the empire, tearing down all these different idols and trying to somehow cultivate what this people of Israel was supposed to look like. But it wasn't until the moment when they were going back through to clean up inside of the temple that they moved things away and they found the law and they brought the scriptures back to him and they began to read them to him. And finally, when they had read the whole story of the covenant that God had made with Israel, this is what happened. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, look at this, he tore his clothes. Now if we hear tore our clothes, usually that's connected with my son who tends to tear his clothes and we get frustrated. But I think what we're talking about is that there's something when we read this book, there's a power to it. There's an authority to it. That when we get it and we understand it, it begins to change everything. And all of a sudden he realized that the foundation of who this people was was found in this book. But they had left the book behind. (laughs) The thing I also love about Josiah is is he was not going to let that stand. So what it says then is he gathered everybody together and finally when we get to chapter 23. It says he sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Now think about that for a second. Can you imagine if I called all of you together and I said, listen to me, we're going to read the entire Bible all from front cover to back cover so everybody show up. But he didn't give him an option. He pulled them together. Why? Because there was something resonating in that book that he knew that the people needed to hear. He was calling them back to something that was so special and so powerful. And every movement of God that's ever done anything significant has always been a movement that comes back to that particular book. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the, of the Reformation and one of the reasons that the Reformation was so powerful was because you had these guys like, like Yo- Johann Huss and, and, and like John Wycliffe that began to study and understand and read the scriptures. And then finally in the early 1500s, when Martin Luther grabbed the Bible and it began to make sense and he began to be understand it not only from the book, but how it fit into his particular culture, the whole world then changed in that particular moment, specifically the world of Christianity. So in other words, there's something powerful and unique about this book. And sometimes we call it maybe this word authoritative. Now, what does authoritative mean? Well, the word authoritative is sometimes used in this idea of something that, that it is over something. So when I asked my wife, I said, Lisa, why don't you tell me what do you mean by authority? And the first words out of her mouth were police. And I said, is there something else I need to know? why are you wondering where the police now what she was saying was is that something that is right and wrong and rules that we're going to follow and we need to keep everything in line now if you're somebody in here that grew up inside of a church that viewed the bible as rules and regulations and things we need to keep in line and order like my wife did you're going to see the authoritative nature of the bible as a rule book that we're going to keep these particular rules I asked somebody else about it. I said, what does it mean that the Bible is authoritative? And this one guy looked at me and he goes, you know, it's just all the different things that come together to make life better. I said, okay. I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, if I were to think of it a philosophy, it's the best philosophy out there. Well, let me just say this. The Bible is also not a philosophical text, though it has philosophy in it. When we think about what the Bible is and what it's about, is it's not first a philosophical text, it's not first a rule book, it's telling us most importantly about God. Now, on one end, no doubt that the heavens, it says, declare the glory of God. But everything about the Bible is introducing us to somebody that nature can't introduce us to. We can stare in the stars all we want. We can go and we can look through nature from its depths to its heights to its smallness to its hugeness. We can do all those different things, and it's declaring that there is a God. But what Scripture does is, is it introduces us to the God. It brings us into encounter with him. It tells us why this whole world was created and not only why this world was created, but how it fell apart and how God is going about and fixing it and and who we are as people and why this world needs to be fixed and how it's gonna end. It tells this amazing, gigantic story to introduce us to the God of the universe. So it's not just a rule book. It's not just a philosophy. It is so much bigger than that. But also what it tells us is, is that its authority is not necessarily found inherently in it. It is authoritative, but what gives it its authority is not an inherent authority inside of itself, but is the author that gives it authority. Let me see if I can explain to you. This particular book is is the last book that I read, and most of you are looking at it going, Todd, I didn't even know you could read a book that big. Because I was lying to you. This is actually the last book that I read. Okay, so. (laughs) People are like, yeah, that fits Todd more, you know. (laughs) Josh, Christian, Todd. Okay, here we go. So now we see this actually was the last book that I read, but I was trying to feel important. Now, when you look at this particular book, what gives this book significance is not the letters and all the words that are inside of it, but what gives it significance is how those letters and words were put together by the author. Now when we look at the Bible, what gives the Bible authority is the author who is God. Now what's so special about the way that he constructed it, and we see this like in 2 Timothy, I'm going to get there, I promise you. Okay, there we go. What gives it significance in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is this idea that when we look down at this particular book, the way that Paul describes it is that it is God-breathed. Now, what do we mean by God-breathed? What we mean is, is while this book isn't God in and of itself, that God, by choosing to give it life, and you'll even see this like in the way it's described in Hebrews 4, it's a, it's living, it's active, there's something unique about it, and the active living nature of it is because God breathed it into this particular book. He gave it life now in a powerful way. Now, the life that he gave it, though, you need to understand it still came from his authority, The authority doesn't lie necessarily just in a book. It's in the authority that God gave it. And therefore, the question we need to ask is not so much, is this book authoritative? It is authoritative because God breathed it. But we have to ask then the question so that we can really understand what the Bible is, especially as the church, is how does God then take and use Scripture to bring about His means? Or in other words, how do we use the Bible biblically? Now the important part about that is the scripture does affirm that God is authoritative. He is in charge of all things. But I think there's also something key here in that when we talk about this story that it's telling us, it's telling us something so that we might be different people. It's telling us how God expresses his authority. Now just go with me here for just a second. From the very beginning in Genesis 1, when we talk about God creating the heavens and the earth, everything came about because he spoke. That's authority. I mean, can you imagine if I came in today and this this wasn't here, and all of a sudden I said, let there be a water bottle, and poof, you would look at me and go, that's pretty cool. Now imagine one who can summon from nothing everything. Everything. Imagine one who says, let there be life, and bam, there's life. Imagine one who can sit there and look at all the elements and not only look at them, but create them and put them all into a place now in which in this universe we exist, he's the one that started it all. That's authority, and it says he did it with his word. Pretty Amazing. Genesis 3 then, we see him speaking again, is that when humanity then had the audacity to look at this one who had spoke everything into existence and chose to rebel against God, he didn't just bring now life out of nothing. The other thing that we see God do, because he cares for humanity, is he also brought judgment. He brought judgment upon all humanity, and we'll sometimes see this in the curse, is that God not only had the power to bring about life But he also had the capacity now to correct and bring back into what God intends life to be. We see this then as everything goes on in God's redemptive process as God continued to speak and he continued to speak through people like Abraham and Moses and David and all the different prophets. Here's God just speaking and speaking and speaking, calling out to people and those that choose to follow him, he gives to them life and salvation and those that choose not to follow him, he constantly reminds them of who he is as God and brings about judgment. In other words, when we get to this point of understanding what this book one of the characteristics of God is is that he speaks (laughs) the other cool thing that happens is finally 2,000 years ago along came this one that John 1 calls the word now he's called Jesus Christ our Lord in other words that's the name that was given to him but John when he's trying to describe him calls him the word in Hebrews 1, it talks about this idea that, that in many times and places, God had been speaking in and through the prophets. But now in these times, he begins to speak through the word. He begins to speak again through this Jesus. And in him now, we see the heart of God as it comes out. And people knew this and felt this. How does he exercise his authority? In Mark one twenty two, one of my favorite passages, is that here's Jesus, and it says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not like the other dudes. The scribes, dudes, same thing in the Greek. But it's just talking about this idea in which literally there's something different about this guy, this word that stands in front of us. But not only did they hear the words coming out of his mouth, but the other thing it talks about is it says they were all amazed so that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Look at this. He even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him, authority. Jesus would speak and demons would come out of people. Jesus would speak and demons would land onto a herd of swine. Jesus would speak and he would calm a storm. Jesus was doing all these different things as a declaration of who God is. God is always speaking to his people. We see it also in John 19 where sometimes people think they have authority and one of my favorite statements at the end is when Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now watch what Jesus is gonna say here. Jesus answered him, you would have had no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus was constantly reminding where authority came from. Now this authority, as we understand it, manifests itself though in something special. When Jesus leaves, he now leaves his people now to manifest his authority so that when we talk about this book, the Bible, the Bible is seeking to bring about in us God speaking what his intent is and what his goal is in and through people's lives. He wants to continue to speak through people. Now, we know that now that one of the ways in which he spoke, it talks about in 1 Peter 1, is that there's no prophecy of Scripture that that comes from one's own interpretation. Watch this. But now, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's the dot? Is that this particular book, here's what's crazy, is it was written by God through people and for people. In other words, this book is not just something that we're meant to kind of see and and sit on our shelves, which probably that's what happens to a majority of Bibles is they just kind of sit there. This book was composed and put together by God for a strategic purpose, and that is now God's people might grab this thing and not just talk about it, but actually bring this thing to life. God wrote it through men, for men, to be able to be then used for his purposes. He brings his authority through the word for his people. Now that really changes things when I begin to understand now that the Bible is not just there because a verse a day keeps the devil away. The Bible is not now there just for me to read kind of one verse to kind of piece it together and then just kind of just go on with my life in different ways. It is now meant to be read with something bigger in mind which we see inside of the Great Commission in verse 20 is that now all of this will come to bear so that God's people will observe all that, and I would say this, is not just commanded, but I've commissioned you to be. When Jesus left, he left with this idea that he was going to leave his word for his people to accomplish his task. And the word was going to sanctify them in truth so that they might now be what we talked about last week, the people that God intended them to be. So why is it then that we don't read our Bibles? Why is it that we're not in them? What starts to happen to us? Well, in 2 Timothy 4, this is one of the things that Paul had to remind Timothy. See, he was understanding that God's word needs to be brought to bear on God's people. And so he says to them, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing. Look what he says to him. In your particular role, Timothy, preach the word. His point is, is bring the word over the people. Tell them the stories of what God has done. Teach them what those stories mean. Call them now to live in light of it. Teach them, Timothy. Be engaged with it. He goes on and he says, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. Exhort with great patience and gentle instruction. Timothy, just keep reading the word over the people. Teach them this book over and over again. Why? Here's his point. Because there's coming a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Timothy, if you don't keep preaching the word over the people, they will then find a way to engage some other way, and the way he connects it is, is they will wander off into Myths. The way that you might also say it is they'll go towards untrue stories or fables or fairy tales. In other words, Timothy, your job is to keep preaching the word so that they will not now go down this path towards these wrong stories. Now, this is important to where we're going right now. I want you to tell this story over and over again. I want you to tell and retell it, which is what God has been asking his people to do over and over and over again all throughout the time that his people have existed. I want you to keep doing this over and over again because if you don't, they will go live a different story, which his point is they will live a wrong one. Oh my gosh, this is easy to do. And let me just slow down here for just a second. Every single day, you all are being bombarded by story. Every time you turn on the TV, a different story is coming at you of what it is that's gonna make you happy, what it is that's gonna make you satisfied. You have neighbors that are telling you stories. Man, the other day, I I sat down with one of my neighbors, and we're sitting there talking, and and he starts to show me the house that they're gonna buy. Oh, it wasn't. And he's sitting there telling me the story of the house. And as he began to tell me the story of why they particularly needed 4,000 square feet of prime territory in Idaho, I first of all looked back at him and said, you've never been in the snow. But second back to it, it was just the story that was coming at me. Every day we're bombarded by stories, aren't we? Buy this thing to make you happy. Buy that thing to make you happy. Here's this particular thing and how you might look at life. We're bombarded every day and so Paul has to say to Timothy, Timothy, because these stories are coming at people every single day, call them back into, and this is the way I would put it, call them back into the true story. Timothy, you gotta call them back. Now here's what's crazy about The Bible is that the Bible isn't now this set of rules and regulations or these philosophical things, is that the Bible is composed in this story. So in other words, the authority that God puts into the Bible is an authority in the story. Now what we tend to do if we're rule keepers is we go through and we read our Bible and we pull out all the different rules that are important. We pull them out, we piece the different rules together and we say, this is how I live. I've got these rules. Now if you're a philosophy person, maybe you're going to sit around and go, here's some cool stuff, you know, that we're learning about, and I picked this verse today, and this verse today, and I kind of, I grabbed this particular verse over here, and I just kind of put them together because it's cool, philosophy. But the Bible wasn't written as philosophical, it wasn't written as rules, it was written as a story. Now it caused me this week to think, why is the Bible written as a story? I don't ever generally think about like seeing authority inside of a story so why did God write a story well here's one of the big things that I found out this week as I was thinking about it is that number one you may not know this or not but you are hardwired for story did you know that that the way that we look at things and make sense of life is actually through story. One of these guys was writing a story in the Scientific American, so therefore it must be true. Uh, but it says, in our nature, we need stories. There are earliest sciences, a kind of people physics. Their logic is how we naturally think. The human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor. So, in other words, what that means is I come home at night and I look at my wife and I go, Love of my life, apple of my eye, cherished woman that oversees my children, how was your day? Now, my wife doesn't go, Well, it's funny, you should ask. Number one, what happened was, and she begins to go through her bullet point list. That's not how my wife operates. In order to make sense of her day for me, she begins to go, well, you wouldn't believe it. And then, you know, and I'm sitting there as a male going, info overload, info overload. <laughs> but she has to frame it in a what? A story. So therefore, men, just know this. Every time your wife talks to talk, she's telling you a story, and that's how we're, fr- that's how we're framed to understand things. Then we go to our children, and we say, how was your day? And they don't tell you a story. They say what? Good. Fine. And why is that so unsatisfactory? Because we want to know what? The story. We're hardwired to want story. Not only are we hardwired to one story, but there's a second thing that endowing the Bible with authority through story, it forces consistency to the purpose and plan of God. So in other words, what I mean is, is that if I'm now operating out of rules or philosophy, I kind of pick the chunks and everything that I want, but if I understand that it's one giant cohesive story, a true story, literal history, to which God now has made me a part, I can't pull this thing apart, because to pull it apart would make the story make no sense. That I've now got to take my life and make it a part of his story, I can't now take things I want out of his story and now force God somehow in this weird way to now just... You'll come and join my story in other words to make it a story forces us now to live consistent lives so my wife and i started asking ourselves this question do we think that our life and our marriage and our family and our friendships accurately display the story that's laid out in scripture I'm kind of the first person to kind of go, yeah, for the most part, not so much my wife. One of the things I love about her is she sees like kind of the problems in different things. And so she goes, well, I've got like five or six different thoughts for you on that one. And she just began to unpack the inconsistency of our life when we compare it to the true story. She started to talk about the facts. She goes, well, Todd, you oftentimes talk about how we need to get people in the book. But she goes, I was thinking about it. How often do we just read the book over our kids and help them understand the Bible? I said, that's the job of the Sunday school teacher, not me. <laughs> my gosh, my children go to a Christian school. Why do we pay so much money? Todd, and then she just began to kind of list out these different things. I couldn't come back to her and say, Yabbitt. You ever had the Yabbitts before? Yabbitt. In other words, when it was sitting there and looking and making it a part of this amazing story, the answer was, is not now to conform Scripture to me, but conform me to the Scriptures. See, what this book over time does is it just sits there and reminds us over and over again this amazing story, and then what God begins to do is he begins to take this book and begin to now shape our life into the story. That's what we talked about this last week, is that we were wanting now as God's people to be ones who wrap their life into God's story, and the only way now that that begins to happen is when the Spirit of God grabs the word of God and begins to change the heart of his people so that his people now come into that story not just in one moment, but over their entire lifetime. I think the cool part then is is what God starts to do is he begins to tell his story through his church. Now, I want to show you this particular video here really quickly. Now, Just watch this with
1: me. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature.
0: Yeah, we all
2: know a narrative when we see one, like the Hunger Games or the Great Gatsby.
1: And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And
2: every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays.
1: Now, All of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world.
2: But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories
1: are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it?
2: Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are intentional. Intentional? Won't that lead to bad interpretations?
1: People filling in the gaps with their own answers?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible. But they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David, David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives.
1: Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether it
2: makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others this is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah,
1: okay. Meditation literature.
2: Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself and then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jew...
0: Pretty cool, huh? Now here's what, the reason I had you watch it. I think a lot of times people see this book and they get intimidated. If I were honest with you, when I went off to seminary, I thought, you know what, if I go to seminary, I won't be intimidated by this book anymore. I went to seminary and I became more intimidated by this book. Part of it is is that I think in one level we think we need to understand everything all at one time. I love how they put it that this book was not meant to be understood in one reading it was meant to be understood over many readings. I think there's this side of it where we, we, we come in and we look at like a me or, you know, a Josh who's sitting over there or any the other guys that preach and we say, gosh, you know, could you just make sure that I understand this thing? Missing the fact that it's not understanding it necessarily just in the moment, but it's understanding this book over time. It's the ongoing reading of it. And I love the way that he also put it, talking about it. My wife asked me this question, how do we do this when we have a one-year-old, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 11-year-old, and we're trying to figure out how to do life in all kinds of different ways? How do we now do this? And I think one of the things we miss is, is that we don't have to accomplish all of it in one time. I think the other thing that he put in there is, is that we should read it together. When I look around this group of people The reason that we have communities and the reason that we have smaller pockets of groups that meet is not just because we're bored, but because we need to actually talk about this book. We need to get together after somebody preaches, or we need to get together after we've read certain things together and start to say, what does this mean? And not only what does it mean, but I would say even this, it's taking it to this next step, is that does my life actually begin to look like this particular story, Not do I pretend it's a part of that story, or not do I kind of rearrange the story to fit my life, but the honest looking at this thing and asking, as I read this particular story from front to back, does my life look like this story? Now, for some of you, you're going to look at it and go, no, there's some great things that God's doing. And the thing I've loved about Cornerstone is that the longer and the longer we've read it, we've always had groups of people that want to understand it and want to live it. But here's the thing is that we never arrive till Jesus returns. It's this ongoing, never stopping engagement with this book. But here's the promise of it is that when God's people engage in this book and know this book and love this book and talk with each other about this book, God begins to do things powerfully in our lives. We begin to speak differently and talk differently. We begin to engage with each other differently. This one guy named D.L. Moody who was alive during the 19th century, a great evangelist, he said, I set out to understand love And he said, I found that the longer that I read the Bible, it started to explain love and transform me so that I loved others. In other words, we're just in it as this means of becoming the people that God intends us to be. That means we have to spend time not only in it alone, but together. That means when you get together with somebody over coffee, talk about it. Talk about what you're reading and what you're learning. If you find somebody that knows more about this book, um, one of the funniest things I ever heard, we, we, we did um, a raised funeral a, a few weeks ago, and a couple weekends ago, and, and one of the things that I remember he always used to say to me is, is my Bible study leader, Mike Land, he and I must be reading different Bibles because every time I sit down with him, he can explain it way better than I can understand it. Why? Because we just have to spend time together. This book may not have an inherent authority, but God put authority into it to make us different. This week, learn to read your Bible. I would venture to guess in a room this size, most of you don't spend adequate time inside of the Bible. Go try it. I remember one guy challenged me one time. He just said to me, he said, Todd, you know, start with 15 minutes and work yourself up until you're reading more and more. But I I would say this don't just go overboard. Also, talk about it and engage with people. If we are going to be the church that God wants us to be to display Jesus into our world, we've got to know this book. I'm going to bring Josh Walker up here to pray over us. Now, if you don't know Josh, you can go ahead and start coming up. He's one of the elders at Cornerstone. He, uh, he's a guy that I've gotten to know over time as a man that I would say with just a, a, a good faith, he's a man that wants to know the book. He's the reason we have guys like him that are elders because it just doesn't that we just talk about the book, but we live the book. He's not perfect, I know that because I hang around him quite a bit and I know he's not perfect. If you want later, I'll tell you more stuff about him. But I'm thankful to have him as one of our elders because he's a man that's marked by this story. And he's a man that wants to live this story. So as he comes up here, I wanna show you a little bit of a video about him and his wife, and then I'm gonna have him pray for us as we get out of here today.
3: Hi, my name's Josh Walker.
0: And I'm Carla Walker. And we have a son who's
3: 15 and a daughter who's 13. So I first encountered Jesus when I was about seven years old. Uh, my parents had divorced and my dad had become a Christian and started going to church. So when I would visit with him, uh, he'd take me to church and just through Sunday school and hearing the word preached, I was first exposed to Jesus. But really the time when the Lord kind of got a hold of my heart was in the transition between high school and college. And I spent three months in San Diego going to church, actually at the same church as my wife. and. Um, The Lord just completely transformed my heart and from there just began to put me into discipleship relationships and just allowed me to continue to grow in my faith. And I first encountered Jesus just by um, growing up in the church, first of all, and it wasn't until I was 16 at a summer camp that I decided to take it on and submit to Him fully at age 16. I think what I'm most passionate about in our church is that people would be able to live out their faith in their daily workplace. And um, that's whether they're a stay-at-home mom or someone who's uh, working a regular job or even an unusual type job. It's, it's to be able to live, there's such a huge part of our lives that I feel like sometimes our faith doesn't get manifested in. And that's a huge passion of mine. And it really comes from the time that I spent as an engineer and felt like I really didn't hear from the church a lot about what it looked like to be a Christian in the workplace, and so I just have a passion for that and helping other people grow in that. I feel like Cornerstone has allowed us to um, invite people in who may not be like us, who are um, not churched, that I feel like we're passionate about
2: reaching out to those who aren't exactly like us.
3: Carla works as a nurse, and uh, some of you may know that, but part of what uh, drew me to her early on, maybe drew her to me even, uh, was that she's always the kind of person that looks for those that are on the margins and are the outcasts. And she reaches out to them. She did it in high school. And um, probably me as the guy coming in from, you know, outside just <laughs> visiting, she probably reached out to me. I I was a little weird looking at the time. Um, but that's a whole other story. But one thing I just love about her, and that's been great in our marriage, and that I've seen her and learned so much from her, is just being open to looking at those that are on the margins and. Um, in whatever way they're on the margins, but reach out to them and care for them and, and draw them in. And I see her do it at her job regularly and and it often comes at personal expense. Um, I don't mean necessarily financial, but emotional and physical and it's just difficult. And I see her come home from work and it's hard and it's trying and yet it's the way the gospel gets lived out in that context and I just love that about her and uh, love seeing her do it. And uh, there'll be times where You guys will see me alone at church on a Sunday, and that's why. Because people are still sick, people still need the gospel on a Sunday in the hospital, and that's often where she is. Uh, Those that are out there that are married to to people that work in those kind of industries, you understand um, just a different kind of type of life that we live that way. I think what I hope we'll be known for more than anything is our love, and that it would be a, a genuine type of love. I think of 1 Corinthians 13, where... You know, Paul talks about if, if we do, you know, if we speak with tongues of men and angels and if we prophesy. And, and I think for us, like, if, if we care for those that are, um, you know, in poverty and we do all these great things and preach great sermons. But like Paul says, if you do those things but you don't have love, then it really is worthless. It's worth nothing. And so when I think about us, the church, like, that's what I hope we'll be known for. Um, and not just for great sermons or, oh, they do these great things, but it would be genuine love that we're known for. Well, they say, <clears throat> behind every great man is a great woman. Um, it's true of ordinary men, too. Um, would you stand with me? And as we pray, um, would you hold out your hands, and sometimes the reason we hold out our hands is to show God that we come with nothing in our hands, and that we are offering ourselves, that it is us is the offering, so... Pray with me. Our reigning king, the Lord of hosts, we bow ourselves before you now. You have all authority in heaven and earth. You are the one who controls galaxies and even holds atoms together. You are the king over all creation and nothing is outside of your rule. And therefore, we bow our hearts before you now. Our King, you are also the author of everything. The world is the tapestry of your story, and thank you for the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, which you have given to us to know your story and be transformed by it and brought into it. We acknowledge that we are a part of your story, and our heart's desire is to conform our lives to your story. Lord, we confessed before you this morning that there are many idolatrous stories, many myths, many false stories that pull at us, and we confess that we are easily deceived by the influences of the world, and we ask you, Lord, to reveal the truth to us. Lord, we confess that the stories of our country, the stories of our families, of our workplaces, the stories of our economy all too easily define us instead of your perfect story. And we confess that these stories are weak and insufficient to accomplish your perfect purpose in us. Lord, may we stop being conformed to the stories of the world and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds to live according to your story from our innermost being. That as a result, our lives may be a telling and a retelling of your story. Lord, you set out in creation to make a special people for yourself a people to be called by your name, a people to display your goodness and your glory, a people to shine as great mirrors of your great light. Thank you for working to redeem a people for yourself after our rebellion against you and the separation that brought. You've worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You worked through Joshua, Samson, Ruth, and Boaz. You worked through Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. You worked through John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, the rest of the apostles, and the one who persecuted your church so severely, Paul, you worked through him, and you have continued to work through your people through the ages down to us. And as we look back, we are amazed by your grace that you use broken vessels like us to fulfill your perfect, unbroken promises. And as your people living in 2017 in Simi Valley, we seek to be a part of that story, a part of your people. Our King, please open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you would say to us. Your people are to be from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation all together under your one rule. May we here at Cornerstone be a glimpse of that reality. Lord, may you bring together people from different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political affiliations, different countries, different ways of thinking about life. May you bring us all together here as one people under your rule. Lord, please break down the dividing walls that continue to separate us and hinder us from displaying the glory of your great rule. Lord, as you unite us, may you May we be your living invitation to those that are marginalized, those that are separated, distraught, those that are broken down, outcast, downtrodden, set aside. May we be your living invitation into a loving family with the most gracious, amazing Father. May we be an outpost of your grace and your peace in the midst of a world filled with division and hate. Lord, we say with the psalmist, who is the King of glory? You are the King of glory. The Lord of hosts,
0: you are the King of glory. Amen.